This talk is given by a student at Ordinary Mind Zendo. In these talks, senior students explore their personal journeys, share their understanding of the Dharma, and offer encouragement to others in their practice. The talks are unique in that they present a diverse set of voices walking a common path. So our practice is to feel at home in our skin with imperfection. Ours, others, and life's. If we just look around, we find imperfection is rampant everywhere. Cells mutate to become cancers. Climate change is causing global havoc. Stars collapse, forming black holes. Everything human is on a spectrum not in perfect silos. For example, neurodiversity. My two of three grandchildren and my son-in-law have been diagnosed with ADHD. Also on the spectrum are sexuality, ethnicity, My DNA test shows I have relatives all over the world in all races, in all religions. And then, in Thich Nhat Hanh's famous example of a blank sheet of white paper, everything in the universe is in that single sheet as it is in all of us. Take any element away and nothing remains. So everything is in everything else. No purity to be found anywhere. No perfection. Everything spills into everything else. That's quite messy. And perhaps, therefore, quite wondrous. I just saw It Ain't Over, a documentary on Yogi Berra. So I think the title It Ain't Over is taken from one of yogiism, which is It Ain't Over Until It Is Over. Now, in that documentary, Stephen Hawking, the famous scientist, is quoted as saying, one of the basic rules of the universe is that nothing is perfect. Right? The basic rule of the universe, Stephen Hawking is saying. And where Yogi Berra, true to his wise form, says, that if the world were perfect, it wouldn't be. That is a very profound statement. Life, indeed, the whole universe exists at the very cusp of perfect order and total chaos. A little to one side or the other, 
nothing will be. The whole universe exists, you might say, on the axis of imperfection. When I was growing up, everything around me appeared, well, broken, uncomfortable, painful. One of my earliest memories is of a sharp earache. Another is of fear of darkness. Then, when I was seven, the memory is of my parents' divorce, followed by my separation from my mother for three years, as my dad had my custody and my parents lived 1,000 miles apart. In between these episodes, there was love. Enough love to provide relief and hope. An aunt rushing with a clove of warmed garlic to put in my ear, which miraculously provided instant relief from the excruciating earache. My dad skillfully teaching me that fear was mostly all in the mind, never outside by making me go into complete darkness out in the grounds while he stood a long distance away watching me. I somehow trusted him enough for his experiment to succeed. It could have easily, miserably failed. Also, afterwards, I also understood what my dad meant, that fear was within, not without. My dad and mom both loved me and responsibly cared for me throughout my growing up years, but in their own very peculiar, imperfect way. Recognizing my fractured family situation, it seems a whole village, in addition to my parents, helped in raising me. Uncles, aunts, cousins, friends, neighbors, and complete strangers. Despite all this love and support, life was tough, often lonely, and mostly a grind, a constant struggle to mend the broken pieces, to fill a void within. In the words and the framework of Charlotte Joko Beck, my core belief was I lacked something fundamental. Sorry. In the words and framework of Charlotte Joko Beck, my core belief was I lacked something fundamental. I wasn't worthy. I wouldn't measure up. I would fail. In the process, I also developed a strong belief that authority figures could never be trusted. 
My strategy to tackle my core belief was to try to become an authority figure myself through my hard work and perseverance. I became, in short, a survivor. My strategies worked well till they didn't. I did well in my studies and later in my banking career, but unbeknownst to me, I was running harder and harder in one place. The void and isolation within weren't getting filled. If anything, they were getting larger and bigger. Then short of my 43rd birthday, I had a heart attack. One thing led to the other, and somehow after reading The Way of Zen by Alan Watts, I started sitting in Zazen. I sat alone for seven years. During this time, I had an experience which may, for want of a better description, be called a vision or a glimpse of the Absolute. It was powerful. So powerful that I dared not speak about it to anyone for years, including my lovely wife. Then after reading Charlotte Joko Beck's book, Everyday Zen, I found Barry and the Ordinary Mind Zendo in 1999 or 2000. There was a connection I felt to Barry because of his teachings and personality. For one, he totally underplayed his role as an authority figure. Affirmed his students by his yes, even if a but followed. Also, his down-to-earth teachings and persona appealed to my own deeply skeptical mind, even if the same mind sought certainty and permanence. There were two moments which continue to light the way for me. One, when Barry, in one of his day shows, said, there is no teacher without a student. The problem of authority, dependence, hierarchy, lack of trust, and linearity just fell away. Everything became crystal clear as interdependent and interconnected. Everything, including the smallest piece, I realized, has an important place in the scheme of things. Everything is needed to hold the whole together. The second moment happened after several sashins and teshos in one nondescript sitting. And all my questions about my life, my wanderings, my desperate search for meaning fell away. If there were no questions, 
then of course there was no need for answers. No need for even enlightenment. Hence, no need for gain. Only much later it occurred to me that perhaps what remained after that moment of clarity was just simple call and response. The work and practice to actualize this insight, however, continues every day in each moment. We do not accept imperfection as constituting the very fabric of life as it is, because we resist life's call. We resist impermanence. It is scary. We resist interdependence. It makes us feel vulnerable to myriad uncontrollable and untrustworthy elements. So instead of response, we resist. Resistance, denial, or escape into fantasy, we might say, is our response. Most difficult of all life's calls are those when we suffer a loss or failure. A continuous cycle, as our teachers tell us, of birth and death. These painfully remind us of our groundlessness, of our groundlessness of our life, remind us each moment of impermanence. This realization our ancestors tell us is what leads to the way-seeking mind. Right? This resistance to impermanence is what leads us to the way-seeking mind. Bereft of hope in our suffering, loss or failure, still we remain on the hook to respond. Perhaps only in an appropriate response may hope arise again. Or perhaps the very question of hope and hopelessness as extraneous in the larger picture of life's call and response. When everything is just this, perfect or imperfect, when there is only the moment and nothing beside it, just this. When not knowing is most intimate and our true condition, then how do we hope? That's our collective corn. From here onwards and forever, our practice then is to actualize our realization of impermanence and interdependence. That is why Buddha practices every day in Mount Sumeru. 
he practices because our collective koan is his koan too. Let me end with the following excerpt from chapter 5, titled Dissatisfaction from Carlson Kyogen's book, You Are Still Here. Quote, Dukkha is our experience of what anikka, impermanence, and anatta, no self, are all about. So dukkha is our experience of what anikka and anatta are all about. What dukkha really means is, I am unsatisfactory. I am marked by dukkha. There is something in me that is imperfect and has no permanent refuge. Everything has an inherent incompleteness because of transience. The impermanent nature of mind, body, perception, all those things that make up a human being means that we are inherently incomplete, imperfect, and inadequate. In letting go and by letting go, I mean really accepting incompleteness, being incomplete, being incomplete non-opposition to the inadequacy of our efforts, we find completeness. Right? Complete non-opposition to the inadequacy of our efforts, we find completeness. Nagarjuna says that the mind that sees into the transient nature of things is the mind that seeks the way. Before this is clarified, we know it as a niggling, needling feeling. Why am I uncomfortable? Or what is missing? These are individual versions of Buddha's early wistfulness. Unquote. This then is our practice. To feel at home in our skins about imperfection. Ours, others, and lives. This is the practice. And this too is the realization. This is the identity of practice realization that Dogen taught us.